The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings. Welcome to Capital Pe- Weekly's... Let me start that again. It's not Capital Peakly, Okay. Uh, greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard, and our special guest today is Meili Tom, a veteran uh, staffer in the Assembly and the Senate, and the first woman chief administrative officer of the Assembly, and you also uh, had a ranking, a commensurate ranking position in the Senate with uh, former Senate Leader David Roberti. So, Meili, thank you very much for taking the time. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to join you on this podcast. This is great because you just wrote a book, um, and it tells it talks a lot about your own background and talks a lot about the background of the legislature and your interactions with the legislature and what was going on over there. Something I only knew from the outside, and you were on the inside. What's what's the name of the book, and when was it published? It, the, the name of the book is "I Am Not Who You." think I am, and actually it was just published about three weeks ago on Amazon, and uh, the reception has been overwhelming, um, and I appreciate that. It, it has a lot to do with my wanting to leave a legacy, especially to young professionals who are coming up through the ranks in politics uh-huh. or working in the legislature. Uh, I wanted to kind of share my experiences and lessons learned and kind of leave a message that success has its struggles and nothing is easy and no one can achieve success without going through some hurdles. And I I hope I represented that in my book. What, what do you think the hardest lesson to learn was for you? You know, personally, as you got involved in the legislative, in the, in the capital politics and policy, and as you went through your journey there? As an Asian woman, I faced maybe more hurdles than just being a woman in that political environment during the time uh-huh. where the majority of the legislatures was dominated by white males. So I had two uh-huh. hurdles. One, I was a woman. Secondly, I was an ethnic minority. So I was a strange face uh, in a political environment that where the mantra is the survival of the fittest. Because as you know, John, Mm -hmm. there's no uh, civil service protection in working at the Capitol. They use the phrase, you serve at the pleasure, uh, you know, which at that time I I thought the significance was kind of uh, questionable. But but that was the mentality. You go and you work in the Capitol. And uh, you are at the mercy of legislators who can fire you at whim. So the first challenge I had when I joined the legislature in 1974 uh, was the fact that I was just a strange anomaly. There were, at that time, only about, I would say about five uh, Asian professionals and about maybe ten Asian staffers in the entire legislature, entire capital. So um, I was very fortunate that I was able to come in as a professional because I was hired by the majority whip at that time, who was Joe Montoya, who represented Monterey Park. 
And as you know, John, at that time, Monterey Park was a growing Asian Pacific Islander American community, primarily Chinese American. So he had a motive for wanting to bring in an Asian professional. So that was my entree into the Capitol, very much by accident. Never stepped into mm-hmm. the state capitol until I went in for my first interview. So the first barrier was that I, I looked around and, and said to myself, am I going to be able just to survive here? Did you uh, ever feel uh, difficult or uh, was it difficult or was it, did it make you uncomfortable knowing, for example, as when you're the chief administrative officer, you're not only responsible to for the people that uh, are of the same party of how you were hired, but also for really... 80 members of the assembly, you're sort of administering to all of them. Uh, Was that a problem, going across the partisan line? Ironically, the problem wasn't when I became chief. The problem was when I was, uh, Leo McCarthy appointed me to become the deputy administrative officer of the Assembly Rules Committee, Uh which is like the the second-in-command in the Assembly Rules Committee. And uh, it was, at that time, I think it was uh, unheard of for uh, ethnic minority to be responsible for the human, uh, I'm sorry, for human resources or personnel management of the assembly. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And going from, and you can relate to this, John, going from serving one legislator to all of a sudden having to serve 80 legislators is a big transition. Because when you serve one member in the legislature, you know that personality, you know that person, you know, uh, you only have one member that you can pledge your allegiance and loyalty to. But when you all of a sudden now have to manage 80 members to make sure that their personnel needs, their administrative requests are being handled, you now have 80 personalities to deal with. That was the challenge when I became the deputy administrative officer, is how Uh do I connect with 80 different members, 80 different personalities, uh, 80 different styles, 80 different loyalties, so that they would, you know, want to work with me and to help them with their personnel problems. And so uh, what I did was, John, to help me accomplish this, this challenge was I studied each member, their personalities, their, their relationships, their district, the composition of their staff, before I met with each of them so that Uh I would have a way to connect with each member. Some I was more successful with than others. Some just didn't want to accept me as an Asian female telling them what to do with their personnel issues. After all, it was like serving 80 board of directors. You know, when I look at them from the outside, I I mean, you saw them from the, obviously from the inside, but when I saw them from the outside, there were some real creeps over there. I mean, it struck me... um, I remember, I, in fact, I, Tim and I talked about this earlier, but I remember the first, I came in 1980 uh, with Associated Press, and the first hearing I covered was a, a rules committee hearing. You may have been there at the hearing, I don't know, but uh, Lou Pappen, the Millbrae Democrat, got up. I bet you were there, and uh, this guy in the audience had asked what sounded like a pretty innocuous question, and Pappen just reamed him out in the audience. I mean, in the in, in the hearing, he just yelled at him, and he was just absolutely lost it. And the guy that had took me to the hearing, um, it was my first hearing, he sort of mentored me, it was a guy named Jerry Gillum, who had been at the LA Times. Oh, yeah, 
yeah. Yeah. Jerry, big, tall, red-haired guy, and he took me over to the hearing, and he said, hey, whatever you do, uh, don't say anything. <laughs> so that was my first uh, exposure to a legislative hearing, and I think I, I walked away from that thinking, man, these guys are terrible to work with. They must be awful. But, you know, in, in, in your book, you're generally positive and mention, uh, you know, Pappen's loyalty. You mentioned dealing with Art Torres, who is something of a mentor. You mentioned Fred Tower, who I very vaguely remember, at least as a name. Uh, I do remember Bob Connolly. You mentioned him. Um, uh, it was just, but my perception was so much different than yours and yours, you're on the inside. So, you know, I, you know, so for what it's worth. However, however, um, John, I have to tell you, my first encounter with Pappen was not pleasant. He did not want to hire me. Um, I, I mentioned in the book, and, and this is what I felt I failed myself. When I went in for my interview with Pappen, who did not want to hire me because a black, black caucus member members wanted to have a black male in that position. So they were lobbying uh-huh. the speaker and Pappen very hard. When I came in to be interviewed by Pappen, he did not even give me eye contact. Me, John, oh, wow. was the only thing he asked me was, what does your husband do? I said, he's a pharmacist. He said, then why aren't you working in the cosmetic counter? I, I was so floored. He was asking why I wasn't working with my husband in the cosmetic counter that, John, I froze. And as I said in the book, I don't even remember the rest of the interview because I couldn't wait to get out of that office. And I just felt I'm not getting the job. And at that time, you know, if that happened today, John, someone would be filing a civil right in civil suit immediately. Sure. Uh In my days, in the 70s, you just don't do that because... If you cause any problems with the Capitol, your political career as a staff person is over. So I just thought, it's done. And uh, Did anybody intervene to help you there? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. It was someone uh-huh. who you know, Fred Tor, the chief administrative officer, who just felt, you know, she has the personnel experience. She's the, she's the most qualified. He went to Speaker Leo McCarthy, who to me is just one of the most respected speakers ever, who overrode Lou Pappen's objection to my hiring, and he risked, you know, losing the votes of the Black Caucus members. But it was typical of Leo McCarthy of just wanting to do what was right. And uh-huh. so I got the position in spite of the opposition. But I have to tell you, Lou Pappen did not want to talk to me for one year. It was that tough. I had to break that barrier. And it was Fred Tor, who was an amazing CAO, who forced Lou Pappen to talk to me. When we talked about personnel program, I mean, uh, issues, he would just want to talk to Fred. Fred would drag me into the office and and would say to Pappen, she knows about these issues. You talk to Maylee. And so that's how gradually we broke the ice. But it was not easy. It it was about one year, John, before he was even uh, willing to talk to me. Well, just going backward a little bit, this I, I found it really interesting, um, the Cantonese opera, of which I absolutely know nothing whatsoever. But you're, you um, got into some really, really interesting detail about your own uh, background, your own life, and uh, when you were a child. And your parents, um, 
one was a comedian, an operatic comedian. Your mother was an opera singer. She also sang, uh, she sang in Seattle. She sang in gambling dens. This is in Chinatown. Um, yeah. It just sounded so interesting. There was a, underground gambling uh, yeah. dens, John. <laughs> <laughs> Illegal yeah. underground uh, gambling <laughs> dens. <laughs> well, upstairs from where your uh, where you folks lived, your parents had lived. Uh, they were well known in the in the Chinese community. Mm-hmm. Was a family who and the woman was pregnant, and. Um, the husband, I think, had been traveling, was out, and he asked your parents to keep an eye on her. And um, she did. She was pregnant. She was going to deliver, and she did. She had her baby. Uh, but it was the baby is who we know as Bruce Lee. Yes. And you mentioned you, you your family didn't have any real, you didn't have any real contact with him. But I just thought that was so amazing. I don't know much about Bruce Lee, other than I've seen a few of his movies that go like at 78 RPM. The guy's like unreal. But this was, uh, I thought this was pretty amazing. That piece of your background was really interesting. It is. And um, if you notice, uh, if you follow Bruce Lee, he went to Seattle to live with my uncle and auntie who were also on the, in the stage troop with my dad and his dad. He went to Seattle to live with them. And I went to Seattle to, to visit um you know, it was Ruby Chow who owned a big restaurant, but her husband was also a stage actor. So the families among the Cantonese opera is very tight. But I missed mm-hmm. meeting Bruce Lee. But he stayed there. When I went to Seattle, I would visit the same uh, family who took care of Bruce when he was in Seattle. So the connection okay. continued. It's just that our paths never crossed. But the Cantonese uh-huh. opera community is very close, very tight. And, and it's a family. Everybody is an auntie and everybody is an uncle. I'll be darned. And the hours sounded incredible. Uh, people going, you know, basically they're, they sleep till in the afternoon, learn their lines, learn their whatever they're going to do that evening, then they do that, and that goes on till the shows actually go till midnight or so. Then people go out. It's a very tight-knit group. They go out and, um, and eat or a party or whatever, then go gamble. And then they're out till whenever they're out and mm-hmm. go back to bed maybe 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. And then they wake up at 2 or 3 or something and get ready for another day. It just seemed like an amazing schedule, especially for a kid to be around. You know, just <laughs> Now, you mentioned um, you had been in, uh, you were in foster care with a French Basque family. Mm-hmm. And that lasted for a number of years. And you consider them, uh, considered them as, as your family and aunt and uncle. Actually, um, John, I was farmed out at two weeks old. <clears throat> so I was an uh-huh. infant. And I was there for eight years. So for eight years, wow. it was my home. I mean, I spoke Basque. I spoke English. I mean, I had the opportunity to step on grapes and make wine. I grew up eating <laughs> cheese and lamb. Um, and that, that was the first eight years of my life. So... French bass people are so warm and effusive, and um, I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't grow up in an environment where an Asian environment is much more stoic and much more um, passive and, and much more controlling. Yeah. So for the first eight years of my life, they really gave me a gift of um, being able to express myself 
feel comfortable in expressing myself emotionally and uh, being more of an extrovert than you would find in, in a lot of Asian groomed uh, families where they are much more reserved. So I wasn't quite as reserved as my my peers. Did you reconnect with your parents uh, later? I uh, on and off. I only yeah. I only lived with my mother in my entire life for about four years. Um, when I uh-huh. went to Oakland to live with um, one of my stepfathers, and um, but that was all. I, I was pretty much on my uh-huh. own by the time I was fourteen. And you went to. You went to San Francisco State, right? Mm-hmm. I did. What did you What did you major in there? What was your I mean, did you know then you'd have an interest in political science, for example? No, you, not what at were you all. majoring in? No, I I wanted to help people because I felt I was helped during my my youth and and uh, I wanted to do the same. So I wanted to be a social worker, and I um, minored in psychology. I wanted to know how to work with people, but I definitely wanted to be a social worker because I envisioned them going and helping the poor and, and people in need uh, and help provide services for them. So that was my major. I was a social welfare major. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, on one, of the, one of the themes of the book, at least you touch on it a bit, is the ability of a person to handle gossip and scandal. scandal. You mentioned an incident with Papin. You also mentioned um, uh, an issue that was well known in 95, 96, 97, right in there, with uh, this question of Asian fundraising and Asian money coming into California campaigns. Uh, several million dollars, some of which was returned, the party returned it. Uh, you mentioned Monterey Park earlier. Monterey Park was uh, had a, as you said, has an expanding Asian community, and that was a fundraiser down there was sort of a focus of at least some of the investigation. What happened with that? How did that develop, and what happened with you in terms of in terms of that issue? Well, um, the reason why I was so involved was that uh, when Ron Brown was chairman of the DNC and when Clinton was um, elected president, I, I was appointed to the DNC Executive Committee. And you know, John, yeah. that is the ruling committee of the Democratic National Party. And since, uh, and I was very good friends with John Wong, who at that time was then appointed to be vice chair of the DNC because of all the money that Asian Americans raised for Clinton during his, his uh, presidential run. And we were very uh-huh. good friends. And whenever there was a major uh, Asian fundraiser, they, of course, want to showcase their Asians who are in influential positions. So as an executive committee of the Democratic National Committee, the president, and, and they wanted me everywhere. They said, mainly you have to represent the Democratic Party and greet these people. And, and I'll tell you, I wasn't too influential because I was there busy giving out name tags and ushering the people to their tables because these were some of the wealthiest Asians uh, in different areas in, in Hong Kong and Singapore and Shanghai and all the uh-huh. So I was not in their league, but they wanted to showcase my position in the DNC. So I was everywhere. I was at the coffees that they were invited to. I was at every single, um, I didn't. You know, I didn't participate in some of the more intimate, where it was just intimate events, where it's just the highest donors. But the general public events, I was to participate in to help host. The most talked about 
scandal had to deal with the Silai Temple. Do you remember the nuns were like straw donors, which created yes, uh-huh. big the headlines. straw donors, yeah. John, I was there. I was at the Silai Temple with Gore and Bob Matsui uh-huh. and, and others. But I didn't see that as a fundraiser. I just saw that as a community event. Um, and however, behind the scenes, I do know and I reveal in my book, because I was with John Wong at that time at his house helping with this event, there was a, uh, a disagreement between John, who was working on a fundraiser, and with another event coordinator who was working on Gore's appearance at the Silai Temple, and there was a conflict in schedule. And John, that's the reason why they combined the event at the Silai Temple. The Silai Temple was supposed to be a community event, and John's event was supposed to be at a restaurant for a fundraising event. But because they cannot, they were not able to handle the schedule, they combined the event, which made the Silai Temple a fundraising event that I wasn't aware uh-huh. of. But I was at that event. So, I, I mean, I was just everywhere, and because of my relationship with John Wong, um, I, I was going to be a natural target. I mean, you know, because I was, I mean, I had Rush Limbaugh saying in his radio, who, really, he literally said, and who's this, who's this slant-eyed woman who is sitting next to Gore, this Mally Tom, what's her woe? What, how much money did oh, wow. she funnel in? I mean, it just was so ugly. Um, so, but... How did that all shake out? I mean, at the end of the day... At the end of the day, first of all, I was never uh, asked to testify before the congressional hearings, which I was subpoenaed to do. They never asked me. I was never investigated by the FBI. Uh, but it cost me $40,000 in legal fees just to oh, get wow. through uh-huh. this process. And I think the press and the media coverage really terrorized me and it devastated me because I just felt it was my career going down the hill. And you know how that is, John. Sometimes once there's an allegation in the media, it never really goes away completely. It kind of stays with you. That's how I feel anyway. Um, And it, it really scarred me. Do you think the media coverage overall, from what you've seen from your years in the Capitol, uh, do you think it was unbalanced? Do you think it was fair? Do you think it was hyped up? Do you have any any thought about it? I know you're not elected, and electeds definitely have thoughts. You saw it from a bit of a different perspective. Right, and you know when when they when the media hooks onto something a national scandal, they hook onto anybody that's going to make headlines. But for me, I tell you what was my saving grace is that the national uh, media did not know me. But the capital media knew me, and they were just amazing. I mean, they had to report what they had to report, because I did make two errors and put two things in writing that were um, uh, misinterpreted. But the capital press corps, Dan Smith, um, um, Gladstone, and some of those reporters, they knew me. So while they had to report what was being alleged, they also gave a balance of my background and what I have done for the Asian community. And they were my saving grace, John. That's why to this day, the Capitol Press Corps, I mean, I just, I owe them so much. Um, is there anything uh, you saw 
this sort of a cultural question. You'd been in a ranking position in the Senate and a ranking position in the Assembly. How would you compare the two houses in the way they operate and sort of their, um, what you call their, their culture, the culture of the two houses? And, uh, you know, we always think of the Senate, or we, the reporters used to think of the Senate as the upper house, which really pissed off the Assembly. <laughs> they had the Senate as the upper house. But it seemed more more conducive to debate, for example. It didn't have as much block politics. Um, and in the assembly, you had a lot of smart people uh, and a lot more active, seemed a lot more energy over there. There was really a difference in the reporting end, I think. How did you see it? You've been in both houses. It was very different during the times I served because compared to, to the differences today. Because the, during the time I served, there was no... Uh, term limits. So the leaders who served in both houses were there forever. And the leader in the assembly who I served was a celebrity. And that was Willie Brown. He, I mean, all the headlines, all the media focus on this personality. And the assembly at that time, uh, Willie was a member speaker. He was very involved with the political dynamics of the house and he was very involved with his members. Um, and he, he ran the house differently in that it was kind of um, each member, it was kind of more, how shall I say, unruly and undisciplined because Willie was very uh, member-oriented. And uh, there were more factions in the assembly. So you always had to be careful yeah. who's talking to who, who's, and, and I always had to ride above that so that I wasn't seen as taking part, and, and between even Democrats and Republicans, because I felt I had an obligation to serve the Republicans as well, and in in that with that attitude, the Republicans also treated me with a lot of respect because they knew I would be fair. So that was kind of much more of a a dynamic uh, situation to to manage in the Senate. We had now a leader who is very policy-oriented. Uh, he didn't get involved with his members because the senators kind of all ruled their offices like little fiefdoms, you know? And they were yeah. very, uh -huh. they're much more um, professional in many ways. They had more respect for decorum. Uh, they weren't as demanding of Roberti because they were just more mature and uh, it was just a more sedate, uh, easier house to manage. And Roberti was such a different type of leader. He was, I, I compared him to Teddy Roosevelt. You know, it's, it's what you walk softly but carry a big stick. And he was very respected, but there wasn't that, uh, all the dynamic upheavals of relationships, of competition, of rivalries in the Senate as there were in the assembly. But Willie kind of liked that too because he liked that. He liked the dynamics. He liked that excitement. Not Roberti. Roberti just wanted to, he was just a policy oriented person. If you remember at that time, he was uh, heading up the ban on assault weapons. So uh -huh, it was yeah. a quieter house, a little easier to manage. But I will tell you that there were, I had to deal with a lot of senior members who were unaccustomed to dealing with an Asian woman in power. Mm -hmm. So I had to deal with some of those barriers in gaining their respects. It was easier with the assembly because it was a younger group. They were more progressive. But in the Senate, 
it was much more established, the traditional older white members who are used to their little clubbiness in the Senate. You know, I think Roberti also, um, he got into some trouble later on. He, I, 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 know, I, can, I understand what you're saying about management, and he had sort of a hands-off, sort of a laissez-faire, I think. Uh, so the committee chairs uh, sort of, they made their own, they sort of have built their little empires there. And there were questions, you mentioned in the book Joe Montoya, uh, Paul Carpenter was another one that got into trouble. Um, there were some staff people that got into trouble with the federal uh, investigation of the Capitol. Um, and at the end of the day, I think David Roberti, however smart and knowledgeable, and that people really agreed on that, but as far as he didn't maybe crack the whip as much as he should have, whereas I think in Willie's case, they probably would have... He probably would have done it much, much more adeptly, you know, much stronger, I think. Just an observation. I agree with uh, one thing I learned uh, when I first started and I got to meet the legendary Bob Moretti. He told me once, he said, if there's a rumor that's occurring about me or somebody that's going to create havoc in the assembly, he said, Maley, I would know within three seconds. That's how attentive I, I think in Willie really adapted the Bob Moretti mentality. He knew what was going on within seconds. And as his staff person, I felt it was incumbent on me, and I don't know if staff still feel that way, to protect the speakership and to be his eyes and ears. And since I had the latitude to circulate among 80 members, I would pick up things and I would, you know, let the speaker know he needs to be cautious here or what has to be done. So I felt that was an important role that I played during that time, which I think during these years is different because, like I said, because of the lack of, um, because of term limits. There's such changeover. You don't develop those same long-time relationships of trust and loyalty um, that I was able to cultivate during a time when there was no term limits. Great. Well, May Lee, thank you very much. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us. And, and this, this is John, John Howard saying, well, thanks, May Lee. I really appreciate it. You know, the some of the background is just so amazing. I think it's even more interesting than the Capitol. I mean, I think it's your family background and the Cantonese opera. Now it makes me want to read up on Cantonese opera. So, oh, thank you, um, John. Uh, so it's so cool. So anyway, thanks again. This is John Howard, and we will, we will see you next time around. Thanks.